This is Bustin' Loose Baseball with Grant and Danny. Interviews, analytics, and analysis on everything baseball in the nation's capital. Bustin' Loose Baseball, no sweep for the Nationals against the Pirates. Day off on Thursday, they start a weekend series with the Miami Marlins Friday through Independence Day weekend. But Danny, why don't we start with that wacky 8-7 game. Normally, we don't get into the specifics of games because, you know, it could be dated, but it's worth it. I mean, there were just so many weird things that happened. Look, I think most of us knew this team's not making the playoffs. They're not going 500. You're signing up for a rebuild. You know that they are going to use a lot of young players, and occasionally that means some mistakes will be made. But what an ugly, entertaining, wild, fun final game against Pittsburgh where there were rules that we haven't seen implemented in years there were players forgetting how many outs there were and like a scene out of angels in the outfield two base runners at a time both sliding in at home plate absolutely wacky I coached uh, 13-year-olds a long time ago and kind of their transition out of Little League into you know the full 90 feet the big diamond and and the like that was very similar to one of those games and I don't just mean the quality of the play it's easy to, to take shots I mean the catcher throwing to a first baseman that was charging for a bunt I mean, multiple double plays into weird shifts where, like, the shortstop Kelly leaked things and, and, uh, and, you know, cut across and they turned double plays that way. A rule that nobody had seen. Unclear umpiring where nobody was quite sure what to do. You know, shoddy defense in in moments. One kid getting on base five times. The other kid hitting five homers because he was special that day. Just an utterly strange day at the ballpark. We we, We did post game on the Nationals Radio Network right in advance of our normal show, Grant and Danny. And Charlie Slow said it best. They, he and Dave have been doing this for, what is it, 17, 18 years now. 17 together, I guess, you know, 18 overall. And they broadcast, you know, thousands of games. We've all seen thousands of games. Sometimes you go to the ballpark, you'll see something you've never seen. And that's the beauty of this game. I mean, sports in general, I think, but baseball especially. I have not seen that play happen in that way, the one that we're going to talk about here for a few moments, ever. I've ne- I've seen people unsure if a guy caught a ball or not, and people you know not really certain if they can advance or not. People just go for it, and then we'll kind of sort it out later with umpire meetings. I've never seen it play out that way like it did yesterday, which ultimately was the difference in the ball game. Yeah, and it's it's not necessarily now a couple days removed worth further legislating, I suppose. But the specifics were that there is an imaginary fourth out that you can get in an inning. You've seen that play out more than. Anything else, probably, when there's a strikeout that goes back to the screen and a runner can reach and, and get on to first base, and then you have to get another out, which would be the fourth out of the inning. But the other reason for the fourth out is so that you can potentially appeal when a run scores that shouldn't have. And that was the case for the Nationals in that had Adrianza at third base stepped on third because the runner, second and third, from third base that scored, beat the tag of the runner advancing from second to third. As soon as he tagged the runner who was going second to third, third out of the inning, the inning's over, except that the run has already scored. And at that point, it's a base running play, essentially. It's like when Juan Soto got his hit against the Brewers, he gets out rounding second, uh, but the runs had already scored for the Nats in the wild card game, and so didn't really matter, right? Well, rather than stepping on third to get the, the lead runner who had scored, would have negated the run and been the third out. He tagged the runner, third out automatically ended that inning, so it didn't matter that he subsequently then stepped on the bag. And as the umpiring crew said after the game, essentially the Nationals would have had to appeal before walking off the field, which they didn't do. I think Davey Martinez thought 
that by Adrianza just stepping on the bag, he had appealed, which isn't the case. They said you have to actually, it's like, you know, being, uh, reporting as eligible as a tackle before a run play. You have to go up to them and say, hey, we are appealing. They have to grant you permission to do that appeal, and that none of that happened. So it was all technicalities and nonsense, but the run counted in a one-run game, ended up being the deciding run in the game. But it wasn't the only gaffe, because I thought the bigger, more egregious blunder, because, you know, it just... That is confusing, and I could see how that could go sideways for a bunch of guys with quirks of the rule on page 49 of this rule book. Uh, how about Kbert Ruiz not remembering that there were two outs, and he was standing on third base, and with a ball hit into the outfield, he waited to tag and ended up dropping for a base hit. Should have long scored. Instead, he held up, uh, I think it was uh, Yadiel Hernandez. Yadiel thought, Hernandez, yeah, round in third base. They came in to home plate together. Hernandez is tagged out. Cost the Nats another run in a one-run game that could have well uh, ended up having them push that game into extras. Yeah, that's more standard practice, right? That's more controllable. That's just that's just being aware. And uh, Ruiz wasn't aware there. So you got the full rookie kid that's exciting with upside experience. He throws out another runner, yet another runner thrown out by by Ruiz. Gets on base three times, I think, with a couple hits. And uh, then, yeah, with a base running gaffe. That, and that's the kind of stuff that drives coaches nuts. It drives fans nuts. And, you know, players don't like to be embarrassed in that regard. I mean, it's, you know... Striking out against 99 with movement isn't embarrassing. Uh, you know, hitting a line drive that someone catches isn't embarrassing. Once, you, once you're once you in control of your own actions and you do something that's that much of a gaffe, it is. Players don't like to be embarrassed. I mean, that's that's kind of how we have some of these unwritten rules in, in the sport, right? Guys don't want to be shown up. Guys don't want you choreographed. This is old history now, but guys don't want, like, choreographed dance when you hit a single. Guys used to not want you to pimp home runs because they don't like feeling that embarrassment, right? And that's what this game is always going to do. It's going to humble you throughout the normal course of events. That controllable mistake is something that is just – Really, really hard for folks to swallow. So hopefully that's kind of that teachable moment where it doesn't happen again to Ruiz. I mean, listen, great players. Larry Walker, a Hall of Famer, forgot how many outs there were one time and handed the ball to a fan. You play that many games, that many innings, that many moments of focus, you're going to have some screw-ups and gaffes. But that one was was pretty tough to take right there because, as you said, it cost the team a run. Well, it's also tough to take because you're trying to sweep for the first time all year and maybe the only or one of a couple times all year you'll be able to do that. And you get 16 hits. You score seven runs. You got to win the ball game at home. You know, they had six guys out of nine in the lineup with multiple hits. Josh Bell was awesome. He scored twice. He was three for three. Uh, he had a couple of doubles, and he, he he walked a pair of times. I mean, he was just magnificent again in the game. By the way, I don't know if you've seen the numbers on Josh Bell here recently, but they're obviously very good. But you extrapolate him out over a year now. Josh Bell over his last 162 games is hitting 300 on the nose. Getting on base at a 392 clip and slugging 500. So that's good for a 900 OPS and a 300 average with 86 runs, 28 homers, over 100 driven in. 162 games, he's done that. He got off to the really slow start. Remember, he had the huge spring training last year. Then he got COVID, got off to a really, really bad start in the spring, and then he caught fire the rest of the way. So based on catching fire the the second half of last year plus the first half of this year, his 162 games that he's played leading up to this podcast, he has been one of the best first basemen in baseball. And I really do think they'll do okay for him in the, the trade market. Ideally, they can make an attempt to bring him back. I'm not confident with the sale pending, uh, but that's what I would do. I, I would trade him, get something back, and then I would do everything I could to re-sign him this offseason. I like that plan. I mean, we've talked about this before in, in terms of you know players finding their identity, right? Every once in a while, we get a generational thing, like a guy like Mike Trout or a guy like Albert Pujols in his prime, 
or Barry Bonds at, at his pinnacle. Guys who can do everything, right? Anything you'd want at the plate. Homer, lead the league in that. Triple crown type stuff. Miguel Cabrera is another example. You can drive in runs. You can hit for average. You can do everything. Most guys, though, that's too much to ask. The superhumans can do that. But the regular mortals sometimes have to kind of pick and choose. And you had someone like Ichiro or Tony Gwynn that they said, no, no, no. Where I'm my best is putting the ball in play, never trying to do too much. Ichiro would put on displays in batting practice. If he'd wanted to, he could have been a 30-plus home run hitter. That's not where he was at his best, though. He was in best, you know, hitting the ball the other way, putting it in play, using his speed, et cetera. Same uh, kind of player with Gwynn. Josh Bell has a 37 home run season on his resume. So this is a, a bit of a tougher sell that I'm going to give you here, but I want to I want to throw this up to flagpole and see if we can salute it. I think he's really kind of discovered what the best version of Josh Bell is. And it's this guy that uses that you know, ridiculous size and strength that he has, not to Adam Dunn, not to drop and drive, which I'm sure people have told him forever, just to try to hit fly balls and, you know, hit nothing but nukes and you know, average be damned. I think he's figured out he can use that strength to be really, really simple and just sort of throw the bat at stuff. Whereas if your regular major league hitter that's not as big and strong as he is, throws his bat at something in kind of this, uh, you know, 40, 50% effort kind of way, it's a measly pop-up to the shortstop, whereas he's, you know, spanking a ball into the gap or hitting one down the line like he did yesterday or finding some greenery for extra base hits. I think this is the best version of Josh Bell, the guy that may not hit 35 home runs, but a guy that can be well over 300, great bat-to-ball skills, more with occasional power. I think he's kind of really coming into his own here in terms of his identity. Yeah, and this is not new by any means. I mean, again, he had a monster year a couple years ago, and you alluded to uh, how good he's been previously. But, uh, yeah, I think more often than not over the last three years, Josh Bell's been an all-star caliber, like, legitimate, outstanding player. And remember, he was drafted uh, when teams were trying to pry him away from a commitment his parents, I think, or educators. Or, you know, education was really important to him. We know now he's got his book club. Uh, he, he had a strong commitment. I think it was to Stanford at the time, if I remember. Maybe it was Texas. Uh, but people stayed away from him because he basically sent a letter out with his agent saying, I'm going to college. Don't draft me. And the Pirates called his bluff and drafted him and said, no, you're not. We're drafting you. And, and here's you. some money. Yeah, a lot of money. <laughs> so, yeah, I think that um, this is a guy that was supposed to be what he's become. And he's a really, really good player and, and might end up being the player of the month. Matter of fact, Darius, would you do me a favor? Pull up Matt Wyrick's Twitter account real quick because the NBC Sports Washington Nats beat reporter posted a bunch of stats today on Josh Bell. Uh, that were really, really crazy. So uh, here it is here with the Nationals off for the final day of June as we're taping this podcast on Thursday. He says, Bell has made a case for the player of the month in the National League. This is where he's ranked this year in these categories. 1.6 F4, third, 358 average, second, 447 on base, first, 695 slug, first, 1142 ops, first, 34 hits, third, seven home runs, sixth, 16 walks, sixth, 43% hard hit rate, fourth. I mean, you, you got a case to say he's the best player in the National League this month. I didn't realize those numbers at all accumulated in this month of June. That's pretty damn impressive. I mean, I knew he was scalding, but I didn't realize it was like that. Yeah, he, he should be an all-star. And again, I, who knows if it'll end up, the numbers will work out, et, et cetera, but he is definitely all-star worthy. Speaking of all-stars, the Nationals hope they drafted one in 2019 when they selected Jackson Rutledge out of junior college. It has been a long road for him. Obviously, the 2020 season didn't happen. Then in 2021, which we'll talk to him about, injuries kept him under 40 innings, but he's finally back on the hill and throwing gas. We caught up with Jackson Rutledge. Here was our conversation. 